Jones. This show is all about the people behind the science of biotechnology and medical devices. Through the stories of the people, I hope that Lab Rats to Unicorns is able to describe the transformative process of you know, how an idea starts in the lab and eventually becomes a life-saving treatment or a product that, that helps patients with diseases. Life-saving. Life, life well, I'm really pumped up about our next guest. I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Misha Dogan. Um, Misha is the Chief Executive Officer and Co-Founder of Cardio Diagnostics, Inc., with over 10 years' experience in bridging medicine, engineering, and artificial intelligence toward building solutions to fulfill unmet clinical needs, especially in uh, cardiovascular disease prevention. Dr. Dogan is a pioneer in AI, machine learning-driven, integrated genetic and epigenetic approaches. She co-invented the core intellectual property that underpins Cardio Diagnostics platform. And uh, Misha founded the company in 2017 to commercialize the technology she'd been working on um, toward making heart disease prevention and early detection more accessible, personalized, and precise. And under her leadership, the company was awarded the prestigious One to Watch Award in 2020 by Nature and Merck. Um, and, you know, really has bootstrapped its way to become a technology leader in cardiovascular diagnostics. They launched their first product uh, for the U.S. market in January 2021, and they secured uh, both dilutive and non-dilutive funding and, and established key relationships with world-renowned organizations such as the Mayo Clinic and Intermountain Health Corps. Dr. Dogan holds a Ph.D. degree in biomedical engineering and a BSE MS degrees in chemical engineering from the University of Iowa. She's a Hawkeye. She was named Flick Women Entrepreneur to Watch in 2021, and Cardio Diagnostics has just recently been named in Fast Company's Next Big Things in Tech for 2022. And last but not least... Misha was very successful in taking the company public here in the last several weeks uh, on NASDAQ. So welcome to the show. Glad to have you uh, in for a really uh, delightful conversation. Thank you for having me, John. Well, if we kind of jump right in, I'd love to hear a little bit about, about your path. What brought you into science uh, to begin with? Um, you know, you have both undergrad degrees and uh, graduate degrees in the sciences. I wonder what was it that kind of triggered your move in that direction early on? You know, I think a lot of times we look back, hindsight 2020, think about the foundational pieces that led us to where we are today. And I'd have to say the same for myself. Um, I grew up in Malaysia. Um, and as you can probably imagine, we've all heard of the stereotype of family members asking you to go to science and technology. Wasn't any different in my household. Uh, that stereotype essentially holds. And I grew up with family members who did science and tech and went on to get graduate degrees, uh, including an uncle uh, who did his PhD in food science um, and actually in chemistry focused on food science and worked initially for Nestle and then with Pfizer. And he studied in Australia. He used to come back to Malaysia for vacation. And every time he would come back, he'd tell us about his fascinating experiments, his R&D, the patents that he applied for, and all the cool things he was doing. And as a kid, my sister and I always thought, oh, you know, we want to be as cool as our uncle. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and uh, thought, you know, science is a great way. We enjoyed it. We learned it. And that was an emphasis. Uh, but the path to getting a graduate degree was something that he introduced us to. Um, so that's kind of the initial path towards uh, moving on to go get an undergraduate degree and then following on to stay on to get a graduate degree. But you left uh, your home country then to come to the U.S. to study here. Tell us a little bit about what that was like. Yeah, I'd like to say that, um, you know, I knew what Iowa was like. I knew what the U.S. was like. I've never been to the U.S. before I moved here. Um, I was actually going to go to Germany to do engineering. Um, I did two years of German in Goethe Institute and they wanted me, they accepted me but wanted me to come and do an additional year of German before I could start my undergraduate degree. And I, I, 
I didn't want to do that. I wanted to skip that year. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to skip that. I was like just too much school. Yeah. Uh, who knew I'd stay on for master's and PhD, <laughs> right. right? Like that's secondary. <laughs> um, but my sister was going to University of Northern Iowa at that time. And my mom said, oh, Iowa, great. Like, you know, you guys will be able to see each other every weekend. Little did she know it's so far apart. Yeah. Um, so I had applied to University of Iowa given the emphasis in medicine with the science aspect of it, the, the research side of things, because I knew that was something I wanted to explore. And so I left for Iowa in 2008 and uh, stayed on for my bachelor's, master's, and PhD uh, the entire time there. What was the environment like there? Um, you know, it, I would imagine that some of the, you know, early ideas that, uh, you know, have come out of your research there form the basis of getting the company up and going. But I'm just curious to walk backwards to try to imagine what the lab environment was like there that um, kind of stimulated your uh, creative entrepreneurial juices to kind of uh, at, at a certain point in time then leave the academic setting and, and go out into industry and, and be an entrepreneur. Can you talk a little bit about um, the environment that you were a part of and whether that was a contributing factor to you know, what led to the formation of cardiodiagnostics? Yeah, I, I go back to the point I talked about earlier, looking at the foundational pieces. Um, I hate to admit it, but I've shared this enough uh, enough times that I'm comfortable saying it. So my sister, when she's doing her undergrad, she was working at her college cafeteria. And she used to tell me when she called back to Malaysia, she used to tell me about how she smelled like bacon every time she went to class. And I thought to myself, oh, I should do better. Like, there's no way I want to smell like bacon. Research is something that I'm interested in. Let me see if I can <laughs> find a position. <laughs> and it's so funny that I say that out loud, but that's how I, I thought, okay, don't want to smell like bacon, want to explore research. And that's how I found my first ever work-study position as an undergrad. Uh, and this was about two to three months into moving to Iowa. And so I've been in the world of epigenetics for nearly 15 years at this point. And one of the things that I saw, especially in engineering, you're always going through engineering classes looking at applications. But when you're in research and development and science, you're interested in hypothesis and publishing and looking at evidence. And for me, there was always a gap between everything that we were finding and learning on the lab side with science and everything that I was doing as an engineering student in class. There's just that gap between evidence building and application. Hmm. And um, I have to say that the people that I met throughout the time at the University of Iowa help you know, shape um, the ability to even say there's an opportunity to take the science and turn it into something more applicable. I do come from a family with two generations history of heart disease. And so it almost just clicked in that the science was so advanced and impactful and it just felt like there needs to be an application, if at all, we can get ahead of it. And you mentioned the word epigenetics. Can you yes. break that down a little bit more um, in layman's terms for our audience who would be curious to know what that is? It's such an important area and a very hot area of research, but it would be great for our listeners to understand a little bit more about that field. Yeah, so I was introduced to epigenetics again when I started in the world of epigenetics about 15 years ago. Never heard of it when I first started. I've heard of genetics, of course. In high school, we learn about genetics. Um, but the part that I think I came to appreciate is everything that we do in our day-to-day -day life, our lifestyle and environment, who we are, how we go about our day, translates into what our cells do, how they adapt, how they behave, how they react. So essentially, you can think of epigenetics as your DNA software that's influenced by your lifestyle and environment. Hmm. So one example I tend to give people is smoking. If someone smokes versus someone who doesn't smoke, the person who smokes is introducing toxins to their cells. So that means their cells would have to act differently in removing those toxins versus someone who doesn't smoke where that doesn't have to occur. Mm -hmm. So your cells at that point when you smoke are changing the DNA software in a way where you're making proteins to remove these toxins versus someone else who doesn't smoke, you don't have to turn that switch on. And so essentially it's a turn on off switch uh, based on our lifestyle and environment. And we know 
majority of our risk for complex disease like heart disease, actually about 80% is non-genetic factors that contribute to our risk. So what epigenetics allows us to do is get a window into someone's lifestyle and environment in a more objective way without having to um, you know, ask or compile a bunch of subjective information. And we're measuring these objective biomarkers that are unique to an individual. And was that the area that you focused on within your graduate studies and maybe a little bit uh, beyond that? Um, I'm just really curious to see kind of um, what ultimately triggered and created, you know, the, the idea around the formation of cardiodiagnostics. Yeah, so I would say the key inflection point in on the research side, the science that allowed for the technology to be built is what... I call gene environment interaction. It's something that we've known time and time again. So let's think about why someone who may be two people who have same levels of cholesterol may or may not have the same outcome. Or simple example to give is two people standing under same really hot sunny day outside may not be equally sunburned. It's not because the environment is different, it's contextual on their genetic in this case, you know, for me, with more pigmentation in my skin, I tend to sunburn less versus someone who doesn't have as much pigmentation. And that's not just a function of the environment it being really hot. It's also contextual on who we are. Mm-hmm. So the gene environment interaction was really the pivotal point in telling us that we're looking at genetics, which is important. But we know genetics doesn't change over our lifetime. We're born with the same genetic markers that we have at 40, 50, 60 year olds, but four or five year olds don't have heart attacks. 40, 50, 60 year olds have heart attacks. It's something that we're doing in our lifetime. And what epigenetics allows us to do is look at the lifestyle and environment in context of someone's genetics to say, how does what I'm born with um, interact with what I'm doing that could elevate my risk for heart disease. So that's what I focused on for my PhD in biomedical engineering. Um, And I have to say the data was very fascinating. It works so much better than I could have ever imagined because going into it, I thought that what we did today in healthcare and assessing someone's risk for heart disease already worked really well. But the data didn't support that. Uh, And the data said that there's now a better science and technology that we're seeing in an R&D perspective that can do a better job. It's about translating it into something clinically applicable. And as you kind of uh, went through that process and gained that insight really at the cutting edge of this novel field and, and, you know, kind of, like you said, you know, beyond the Human Genome Project, beyond understanding genetics, getting to that epigenetic level, um, understanding kind of the the surrounding environment's impact on on disease states, both pre- preventative uh, or therapeutic. Um, what w- what were the moments uh, where you started batting around the idea of there's something here? Um, it would be really interesting to you know start to move forward around this technology, you know, in a more um, uh, commercializable fashion. Yeah, one of the things that we know generally holds is we cannot treat or manage something we don't know. So if we, if, if providers are going on to see patients, if we're going to our doctors and getting our tests and checkups, um, whatever decisions they make, however they try to help us, whatever we do in our lives, it's all a function of the information that myself as a patient and my provider, we both have at our disposal. And... The pivotal point was saying we don't even currently have really good data um, that we're able to make effective as informed clinical decisions um, as we should be or we can be. And the other layer to that is a lot of people don't think about prevention, right? Like we don't tend to see our clinicians unless you know, pain, aches, mm-hmm. something we're along, sick. yep, until we're sick, we don't really think about our clinicians. But that's the time we should be because about 80% of heart disease can be prevented. So it's essentially the the pivotal point was the data showing that we're not doing a good job of first and foremost identifying people. There's an opportunity on on the science that we saw that we're able to do that 
turning it into a clinical test is a whole other ball game. Yeah, tell right? us a little bit about that. That again, that's that's kind of what I'm getting at. Is yeah. it's one thing to have that concept and do the research and identify, you know, the uh, interesting outcomes and maybe proving that hypothesis. Mm-hmm. But it's a whole another to you know start a company around the idea and the concept and then turn it into a yeah. clinically useful product. Tell us a little bit more about some of the challenges and you know ups and downs in that process yeah i think one of the benefits of coming from the world of academia is um the science is sort of the pillar right like you use the science to guide but one of the things that in building a clinical test it's about building partnerships it's about building relationships with those who help you advance so one of the key advancements we had to make is Again, we studied it early on. Does this apply to a whole group of people that we've not seen before, right? Like, is this more generalizable than what we think? Is it less generalizable than what we think? What are we seeing? So one of the key areas was being able to go out and find those key partners to be able to do some validation studies. So that was sort of our first major step towards thinking about a commercial product. Once that was done or while that was going on, it's hard to look away from all the regulatory aspects um, that have to come together. So in our case, if we launched this as a clinical test that does risk assessment, you know, how are we able to launch it? What's the regulatory pathway? What would we need? So all the commercial pieces to operationalize the test. Um, and then the other aspect that um, I, I did not learn in school, but learned on the job, was being able to think about who do we have to bring together to have that conversation from a go-to-market standpoint. Mm-hmm. Because it's one thing to develop a great product, it's other thing for it to actually impact people. And the only way to impact people is to have buy-in, um, to have people, providers use your test and offer it to their patients. So I'd say those three are major areas that we had to work before we could even launch the test would be the validation, the regulation, and um, the go-to-market. What were some of the early days like there? And, you know, one question I would ask, you know, I, I um I would imagine that not only was it difficult to kind of go from academia mm-hmm. to thinking about now transitioning your brain from a technology to a product and solving a problem, although your engineering background helped, as you said, kind of differentiating your experience on both the scientific side where you're forming hypotheses and you're making conclusions, but not necessarily taking it a step further and solving a problem. With engineering, it's really applied. You're solving problems. So it's just interesting to see that, you know, that training um, probably led to your ability to maybe more smoothly transition from the, you know, academic mindset to the to the product orientation. But what were some of the early challenges that you faced in getting the company off the ground? And I would imagine, you know, as a woman, a woman of color in particular, that you faced even greater barriers. Can you share any stories? You know, others will look to you and aspire to follow in your footsteps. Were there any experiences you can share with our audience that might um, inspire and, and invite others to, to join in the, the journey? Yeah, I think the challenges early on, the only way to describe it is drinking from a fire hose, right? A lot of aspects, I was very comfortable with the science and technology. Everything else, not so much. And one of the things I learned early on is I just gotta be unco- just gotta be comfortable with being uncomfortable, right? Like that was an ongoing theme. It's still an ongoing theme, right? It, the day that I feel very comfortable, I probably question what I'm doing, mm-hmm. right? That means I'm not learning as much. Um, but for me, one of the key challenges was just trying to find people who I can just ask questions. Um, and just that information gathering. It's one thing to read and learn, which, you know, there was lots of that, but just being able to identify people who have walked a similar path um, to say, hey, you know, from a regulations perspective, you know, what did you do? Who did you talk to? Should I be getting a consultant? I mean, there were times where we got bad advice from consultants and we rolled with it because it's not like we knew any better in developing the specific test. So, I would say the initial challenges were geared more towards trying to find people who, you know, I can personally ask questions and be able to to learn from. But the one thing I also learned while trying to get through that challenge is there's so many people out there who are open 
to sharing their experience and their journey. They want to save you the heartache that they went through. And I found a lot of that. Um, but the one thing that I always kept in mind is the end person who's going to benefit from the test. Mm -hmm. We're able to improve people's quality of life. We're able to help people spend more time with their families. We People don't have to go into bankruptcy because of healthcare incidents. There are so many things at the end of the day that we don't even see beyond just, you know, preventing a heart attack. So I would say the initial challenges were more so around operationalizing what we had built mm -hmm. and finding the right people. And from a, I have to say that I've been very, very fortunate um, in that I've heard horror stories from other founders of color, women of color, uh, and I've been very fortunate to be able to surround myself with people who have championed what the company is doing and have continued to support me. Has it been easy? No, not at all. Um, but have I been able to navigate through it? Yes. And am I confident that people such as myself and others would help those in the future who are you know, building solutions to meet challenges, I'm very confident that we'll be there to help them. That's excellent. Yeah, kind of the pay it forward mentality. Yes. And and maybe a little bit about your thoughts around, as I was hearing you talk about, you know, people leaning in and supporting you and lifting mm -hmm. you up, um, the value of ecosystem or yes. just uh, that word and what it means to you and how has it, if at all, uh, helped, you know, your development um, as an entrepreneur and, and importantly, cardio diagnostics as a company. That's something I craved when we were building out of Iowa City, if I'm being completely honest. Um, there was, uh, it wasn't because there were a lack of people trying to help. It's just that the environment didn't really allow for what we were looking for. Uh, didn't have as much funding, uh, didn't have as many people who built companies staying on to continue to build. So it was hard to meet others. And that was one of the reasons why, you know, we had to really look and say, if we want the company to grow and succeed, where do we find the kind of ecosystem that we're looking for? Um, and I'll be the first to say we looked at places like Boston and San Diego and usual suspects. Uh, but I didn't know we were moving at the time when the pandemic was going to be a thing. So in uh, February of uh, 2020, decided that we wanted to build the company and move it to Chicago. And so we moved. Uh, I think we had an office space, co-working space downtown for like two days <laughs> <laughs> um, before, you know, we started retreating and started working from right. work from home. Yeah. Um, and it didn't stop from being able to explore the opportunities and what the ecosystem offers. Uh, that's something I will be always grateful for. And I think the ecosystem has only continued to grow here in Chicago. And we've been very fortunate to be a part of it and to grow alongside the ecosystem here. Well, one of the big things in growing and scaling a company is um, building a team, accessing yes. talent, unique talent, uh, particularly for a, a, a scientific enterprise like cardiodiagnostics. Um, and I think that is also a component that goes along with the ecosystem as well. It kind of de-risks opportunities where you may be able to attract talent, um, where in other cases it's more difficult to attract. Have you found that to be the case that by being in an environment where it's enriched and more densely populated with like-minded um, you know, talents that you're able to uh, build and scale a little more rapidly? Yeah, I mean, beyond just talent, I personally would say I love the like-minded aspect of being in an ecosystem, right? Like as much as companies are solving different challenges or different problems, at the core of it, they tend to be pretty similar. Um, and as far as the team, um, Again, the team, the cardiodiagnostics team uh, is A++. I get to work with some of the, some incredible people on a day-to-day -day basis. As far as building an, a team here, um, having the kinds of talent that comes out of Northwestern or UIC or just the area in Chicago has been very helpful, not just for immediate team members, but as a company, we look to have a pipeline of interns and co-ops who over time could become full-time team members. So that's something you know we've started doing, we will continue to do, and it's it has allowed us to hire top talent. 
Um, but I think one of the areas that the pandemic sort of influence is the whole work from home. You right. get to work regardless of where you are and be part of a team. Yeah. So we have had to leverage that as well, um, given that sometimes certain people that we're looking for are highly specialized. Mm -hmm. And so we've had to figure out, you know, where we're willing to compromise. Um, and it's nice to have a balance. Uh, but I think having a, a, a great team is something that I'm very grateful for. Yeah, and I think you pointed out just the ability to kind of access unique talents in other ecosystems mm -hmm. um, levels the playing field in so many ways. You know, as you think about post-pandemic, one thing we've seen a lot of is, you know, companies that have a core team in one location, but they've got another team in a, in a different market because the skills and capabilities in that particular ecosystem are suited to that type of um, area of, of work. And, you know, companies that you know have um you know a cmo in uh in florida and a cso in seattle but a core scientific team you know based in chicago or boston or whatever the case might be so i think that's really been a fundamental opportunity and a leveling of the playing field where you know you can build here wherever here is yes. um and scale in a more distributed fashion that's definitely something we've we found as well um with our with the companies that we're we're supporting i i think um one thing would be helpful is to define in a little greater detail a little bit more about um, the cardiodiagnostic platform. So can you describe for the listener, um, what is the product, you know, who is it helping and um, pro provide maybe some illustration around what, what is it and then um, ultimately what outcomes does it help produce? Yeah. Um I'll talk about the technology first, just because it forms the basis of our various solutions. At the core of all of our clinical products is the profiling. So we're measuring and aggregating two types of DNA biomarkers that are unique to each individual. So they're genetic marker and they're epigenetic marker. So essentially what we're born with, our inherited risk, and what we're acquiring, our acquired risk, and we're looking at that as an aggregate. And all of our solutions, they're essentially clinical tests, they're blood-based clinical tests that we collect blood and extract DNA out of so we can look at those specific biomarkers. The specific clinical test is geared towards a specific type of heart disease. So whether it's coronary heart disease, which is the most common type of heart disease and the major cause of heart attacks, whether it's stroke, whether it's heart failure, and so on. So the core technology is the same. What's different between these uh, tests is the type of heart disease that we're looking at and the combination of these genetic and epigenetic markers. Where machine learning and AI comes in is it looks at that complex, complex interaction between these biomarkers in understanding who this patient is. And so essentially, they're all clinical tests. The test that we currently have on the market looks at someone's three-year risk of having a coronary heart disease event. Essentially, what we're looking to help providers understand, and of course their patients, is what's the likelihood this patient may have an event like a heart attack in the next three years. The whole idea is we're trying to first and foremost look at prevention. Mm -hmm. And because we're assessing risk better, so just to put a num few numbers behind it, what we saw with the current lipid-based tests is out of 100 men at risk of having a heart attack, we're identifying 44 of them correctly. And for women, it's only 32. Mm. We already understand, right? Like we don't do a really good job in understanding heart disease in women because the presentation, the signs and symptoms of heart disease between men and women, they're not the same. But historically, we've studied heart disease in men and we've tried to apply it, he apply it heavily to women. So when we developed this test, we realized that it's not just about improving the overall ability to identify those at risk, we need to make it more equitable. And so with our test, we were able to develop it in a manner where out of 100 men at risk, we're identifying 76 men and for women, 78 women. Mm. So we've able to improve men's sensi the sensitivity for men by 1.7 times and for women 2.4 times. What that means is if we have better information, if we're measuring our population at scale and we're able to first and foremost identify who's at risk of having these cardiac events, they are getting the necessary help that they need. The other key thing I mentioned about earlier is 
people don't really participate in prevention. As much as it can improve outcomes, it's a very hard thing to participate. And rightfully so. It's not just about going into your doctors. We know there are social determinants of health that form barriers in being able to get high quality care. Um, so one of the things we were very cognizant about is where do we meet, how can we meet patients where they are? And so the version of the test that we launched is um, one, one version is fully remote. So you can do it through telemedicine and at-home sampling of your blood. So you never have to leave your home or you can do it in the more traditional in-person provider settings. The idea is we want to meet people where they are. We want to provide better data and information as a basis for saying if more of us participate and we understand better, clinicians now don't have to be concerned if the decisions that they're making is the best that they can. Because at the end of the day, they're looking to make sure that their patients are being taken care of. And what we're providing are solutions for them to be able to do that more confidently and in a more informed fashion. Um, our upcoming tests are uses the same technology, uh, looking at other types of um, cardiovascular disease. The next test that uh, we're going to be launching looks at diagnosing people for coronary heart disease, because a lot of people tend to, again, be undiagnosed, uh, underdiagnosed, undertreated with other signs and symptoms, and then stroke and heart failure as well. Special thanks to our sponsors, World Business Chicago. Connect with World Business Chicago, the city's economic development agency, and discover more about the city's vibrant life science ecosystem. From Chicago's global universities and research institutions to its diverse pipeline of skilled talent and vibrant neighborhoods, as well as its cutting edge lab and office space, Chicago has the fuel for your company's success. There's no better place to build a life science company than in Chicago. It's amazing just to see the convergence of AI and, you know, high performance computing and machine learning as applied to medicine or diagnostic tools. What are, what are your thoughts around, you know, continued kind of uh, emphasis in this area and maybe the openness of FDA and uh, providers uh, in accepting, you know, this um, awesome new tool that can really um, be, al allow for more realistic personalized medicine, and whether it's on the therapeutic side or, as you point out, on the preventative side. We really got what we wished for when we said we wanted more data. We wanted more insights into an individual. We got that, right, in droves. Think about all the genome-wide data that we're able to get, whether it's genetic, epigenetic, protein data. Regardless, we now have millions, billions of data points about a specific individual, the challenge now is what do we make make of all the data that we have, right? Now, the challenge is more of a data problem than a measurement problem. And so AI, I always say AI, machine learning, supercomputing, these are tools at our disposal. And it takes people like us in science and technology to make sure that it is applied in uh, an informed manner. It's applied in a way where it can derive value. And at the same time, talking about um, you know, the FDA and providers, a lot of times, especially when I was first starting to work in machine learning and AI, the initial pushback was, it's a black box. Like, I don't know anything about it, it's a black box. We have gotten past that because we've gotten better at developing models and developing AI-based solutions that we can now better explain. Um, and then there are forward-leaning providers who are helping educate their peers. So it's going to take time, whether we like it or not, just like anything else in healthcare. Um, but I'm very confident that as we continue to see the value of machine learning and AI-based solutions, it's just going to be very hard to not adopt it. Mm -hmm. um, it. Provider organizations and providers are, in my opinion, I've seen a lot of them moving fast, but you're going to have your patients turning to you and saying, why am I not getting access to the best-in-class solution there is out there? Like, what are you doing to make sure that you know, I'm receiving high-quality care regardless of who I am and regardless of where I come from? And, you know, if I just kind of segue into, again, uh, 
build the building blocks to build a great company. You know, you've talked a lot about team. You've talked about the environment, the ecosystem, the science, the technology, the market need, the problem that you're solving. The other part of this is, you know, capitalizing. And, you know, I'd be interested to hear a little bit more about your, you know, your journey on raising both dilutive and non-dilutive funds. And of course, would like to spend time also hearing a little bit more about your journey, you know, this year in taking the company public on NASDAQ. I always think that fundraising will always be top of mind for founders and management teams. Uh, Everything that we do in healthcare as a company is always more expensive than you think it's going to be. Um, but being smart about where or how you're raising the funds and who you're raising it from, I think is very important, especially in the early days. One of the things that I'm grateful for is not just raising funds for cardio for the sake of raising it, but also thinking about value add with the money that we are receiving. Because sometimes the knowledge and the value add goes a whole lot longer and farther um, than just the cash that you have in your bank. Um, and for us, we started off with what we knew, which was writing grants. Um, we wrote a lot of NIH grants. Um, it's I'm, I'm grateful for the taxpayer money that we're using to develop a lot of key solutions in healthcare, including we got a uh, phase one NIH SBIR, um, but it's a very long process. And I think the disconnect there is as a company, everyone's looking for you to produce so quickly, um, but it's a circular problem because you need money to produce. Mm -hmm. And for us, just sustaining on the grant cycles, it, was, it just wasn't an option. Mm -hmm. um, so we turned to initially a friends and family around um, because again, it's a circular problem. Everyone wants data, but you need money for data. Um, so we leveraged a lot of resources through the University of Iowa and did a friends and family round. So that was our first sort of non uh, or dilutive funding. Um, so we went out and did that. And the other thing we did soon after that was we did two seed rounds. A lot of it was people in our network these were high net worth individuals, uh, angel investors type individuals who came in. So we raised a decent amount of uh, money, over $10 million. And by that time, we had already evaluated who we are as a company and what is our path forward. And that evaluation was mostly, do we want to stay as a private company or do we want to be a public company? And I owe it to the chairman of the board, Warren Hosseinian, who has taken multiple companies public successfully, is an MD by training, someone who really understands the science part of it, but also in building very successful healthcare companies. And one of the things he said early on was very eye-opening in that you don't have to reach a certain level or you don't have to, there aren't, there aren't things set in stone to say, going public is now an option. And he opened our eyes to that, that that's a possibility. Um, and for us, you know, we had to look at the pros and cons of being a private company or going public. One of the key considerations is again, access to capital. I would say that is one of the major key, key reasons why, you know, as we evaluated the option of becoming a public company, we wanted to go down, go down that path is because we have access to more investors. We're able to go out and tell our story to many more people. And we're able to reach a diverse group of investors, um, which is possible as a private company, but not as vast as if you are a public company. And I would say that was one of the major consideration. And the second is, as a public company, we saw that you know we'd have a very powerful currency whether it's in hiring people or being able to think about mergers and acquisitions, now we had a public currency that we could work with. So those, I would say, are two major reasons why we considered that. Uh, we actually started the process of going public um, through a reverse merger that didn't go as planned. So we you know, regrouped, re-strategized, and ended up coming across um, the SPAC um, that we ended up going public with through our network. It was actually through Warren. Um, and 
um, it was we started that in April and we closed at the end of October. Um, again, it's one of those things where you just be comfortable with being uncomfortable because it's yeah. a whole new arena again, yeah. all yeah. over again. Yeah. Um, but this is the right decision for cardio. And I'm, and I'm very happy that we embarked on this journey and we're only getting started. I, I will always say we're only getting started because the types of challenges that we want to solve is vast mm-hmm. and is always going to need creative solutions. As an, and as a company, we don't intend to stop with just our clinical tests. So we're always getting started with something bigger and better. Well, going through that process, I would imagine you had to kind of um, pitch your story to um, a large swath of prospective investors. Um, can you maybe share um, any story around one, one, you know, maybe a more challenging um, piece of that process? Was, the, was it the endurance of getting to the end of that process? Was it the, the waiting for the, sometimes you have to wait for SEC to clear documents or get audits completed, or there's just so many factors that go into getting public. It's almost miraculous when you think about <laughs> the, act that, the fact that it actually happens. Were there any of those things that stand out to you that were particular, um, like headwinds or challenges that you had to surmount? Oh boy, the audit was uh, very, very interesting. Um, as a private company, of course, you know you keep your books straight, you know you keep your accounting, but nothing that surmounts to the level of getting audited to be a public company. Mm-hmm. So that was very eye-opening for me. It's just how you have to cross your T's and dot your I's and do that you know, at a level that you just never thought about, or at least we didn't think about as a private company. And I would say having our CFO, Elisa, who's had that experience before, really alleviated a lot of the pain. But even then, I was heavily involved in all all parts of going public, but especially with the audit initially, and uh, very, very eye-opening. So that, that I would say would be the first window into you know, how, just how much yeah. work it's going to take. Yeah. Um, the second part was the SEC. So putting together all the documents and just playing the waiting game. Mm-hmm. Um, and y- you just didn't know because so many other downstream pieces hinged on hearing back from the SEC and what they were going to say and the comments that they were going to come back with. Right. And the goal is always to move things along as fast as possible. Right. There, I would say having good attorneys, um, really, really important. Um, I would say our CFO and a great group of attorneys and just having people who have done this before to say, you know, let's try this or that. Um, I think that really helped. But I would say those were the two major challenges. Yeah. And those, those are, uh, and I think just kind of eye opening and just very hard to be patient. You know, as a mm-hmm. CEO, you kind of have to have the right blend of patience and impatience and waiting uh, to get the road show underway or, you know, getting out there and moving the ball forward is one of the most painful things to <laughs> endure, I think, as a, as a CEO. Um, now you're public and how yes. does it, uh, how does it feel? What are some of the changes that you've had to kind of, um, undertake as the CEO now of a public company that were different uh, in your role as a CEO of a private company. I mean, in helping and, and being part of, you know, IPOs uh, in, in my own past, um, you know, I've, I've found that, you know, thinking about the role of the uh, CEO uh, prior to coming public as almost a different job description than mm-hmm. your role as the now a, a day later after you're on NASDAQ, um, you almost have a brand new job in certain respects. Mm-hmm. I just wonder if you found that as well and what's different about being a public company CEO? Um, I would say it's still getting used to all the reporting that we have to do and just keeping all of that straight. Again, you have a great team. I have a great team around me. And so that that is less, um, you know, less challenging. But the main thing is a change in the way I think as far as results and acceleration. Um, We operate now on a quarterly basis Mm -hmm. because we have quarterly filings. And investors are looking to those quarterly filings, those quarterly calls to be able to make sure that the company's moving in the right direction, we're doing what we're doing or what we said we're doing. Um, And so just reorienting to think about 
quarterly wins has been something new. Hmm. Didn't have to do that as a private company, um, but just shifting the way we think about what we're putting out there. Um, we never used to you know, put out as many press releases. Mm-hmm. Uh, now we want to keep our investor base informed. So that's something new that we're doing. But again, the main shift has been the quarterly thinking as to how do we break up what we said we're going to do into quarterly milestones that we can show and talk about. Um, the other is just always ongoing investor calls or presentations. Um, and that's nice. You know, it just helps me meet a lot more people that I wouldn't have met if we were a private company, especially retail investors, and being able to meet them, share our story, get feedback. Um, and I've had more, um, I think, more f- more things that I could learn and implement from all of these conversations than you know I can even think about other ways. And I think that just really helps shape um, what we do on a day-to-day basis as far as you know our goals, but what are some creative ways we can go about it, or how how are people from the outside looking in? Um, and seeing what we're doing, just getting that constant feedback has been good. I mean, it's not always great feedback. Sure. Um, but nonetheless, I'd rather hear it now um, than hear it, you know, when it's a little too late. Yeah, no, that's an excellent point. And I just think the iterative process mm-hmm. of constantly being in the market, speaking with as many investors who, as it turns out, are, you know, experts, you know, at, you know, product development, seeing the whole market, having a panoramic view, there's no better, you know, learning opportunity than being in front of those who are supporting the company or prospective investors that someday would be investing in the company if you can address certain open items that they have. Um, Not every investor is going to invest, but even just learning uh, what feedback you're getting is improving and strengthening the quality, you know, of the company every every day. And I do think that's absolutely true as as a public company. um, You're you're constantly in the market and you're always on the, the cutting edge. Um, and to your point, it's it's a it can be an up and down process too. Uh, it's not always a straight line to that successful, um, you know, next level. But it's how you get to the next level. It's the iteration and having the right striking the right balance between listening and acknowledging mm-hmm. and learning, and leading and saying here's where we're going and we're confident in moving in this direction and capitalizing on these markets. What are your thoughts as we continue to kind of wind down the conversation? What are what are some of the things that uh, are the most uh, inspiring and exciting to you as you think about cardio diagnostics over the course of the next couple of years? You mentioned going public allows you to kind of think of on a, on a bigger scale mm-hmm. across a vaster set of problems. Um, what are some of the um, areas of vision that you have that you're now enabled to think about now as a public company? One of the key things is just being able to build a multi-stakeholder coalition. And I think in healthcare, sometimes we, we put our heads down and build, but problems in healthcare cannot be solved by a single individual or a single entity. And it requires those who are involved and those who are involved in the entire care continuum to come together. And I think now with being a public company and just where we are as a company in our operations and growth, we're able to go out and bring together these stakeholders. We're able to initiate it. We're able to do it at scale. Um, We're able to bring people to the table to have a meaningful conversation. And the one thing that I always, the team and I talk about all the time, we're not a company in in the whole healthcare world just for a transaction, right? We're not looking for people to buy our tasks and we're going away. What we're truly invested in is to redefine the way we think about cardiovascular care. And that doesn't just look as a transaction. And that's really not the only or the main thing we're interested in. What we're interested in is fundamentally changing the way we all think about the opportunity to get ahead of um, heart disease. So I'm very excited as we continue to grow that alongside others, uh, we will play a, a key role in changing the narrative when we're thinking about 
first and foremost helping people prevent events that we can prevent as opposed to treating them um, when they're sick. In other words, I'm excited to work with more people looking to change the world. Yeah, excellent. And, you know, maybe my last question would hinge back on kind of what what advice you would provide, you know, to the listening audience, particularly, you know, younger individuals that are maybe in grade school or high school, maybe even in college, um, you know, any advice that you would have um to those individuals that are considering what their career options would be and, you know, maybe your thoughts around why the path in um, either AI or AI-enabled life sciences could be an exciting journey. Now, that could involve them just wanting to not smell like bacon. That could be the case. But outside of that, do you have any other ideas or thoughts that you'd share with the audience? Um, I'll go back to what I said earlier. There are people out there who are looking to help others who are, you know, looking to walk a similar path or a different path, but have similar elements. And the best relationships I've been able to build are those where I've reached out to people and asked for help or asked for guidance or I've worked with, you know, I've shadowed cardiologists. I spend time in a cath lab. Is it pleasant? No, but was it fun? Yeah, being able to learn firsthand. Um, whether it's internships or whether it's just trying something mm. out for a couple exposure. of weeks, exposure. And it, those things may not be available. So we may not publicly say like, we're hiring this role or that intern. But sometimes just reaching out and asking, do you have an opportunity for me to experience X, Y, Z? I think that in itself opens a lot of doors uh, and it builds your network. Um, I think a lot of us here, your network is really key. And as you go along in your career, and especially if you're looking to do, you know, looking to build a company, looking to start a company, you know, figure out how do you patent a technology, just having the kinds of people you can go back to and have conversations with, I think that's really key. I don't think machine learning, or I believe machine learning and AI is not gonna go anywhere, especially in healthcare, right? Like when I was starting with machine learning and AI, we were taking what we had done in other areas of the world and we started using it in healthcare. It's definitely here to stay. Mm -hmm. uh, I think it's worthwhile asking, is that your path? Just because it's the... Um, just because everyone's talking about it right. doesn't mean it's your path. Sure. Um, but is it your path or is there a way for you to augment what people are doing in machine learning and AI in healthcare? Um, I think that really goes a very, very long way. We still have so many challenges in healthcare and beyond to solve. And uh, I'm excited to see the generation up and coming um, just, you know, help us inch closer and closer to addressing these challenges. Well, Dr. Misha Dogan, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Really appreciate the time. And more importantly, we truly appreciate our collaboration with you and are excited to continue to follow your progress and support your endeavors. Thank you so much. Thanks, John, for having me. Thanks for joining us today. It was another great episode. I hope you enjoyed the conversation with our guest today and were inspired the way I was. Looking forward to reconvening again in two weeks. Please visit our website at labratstounicorns.com. We welcome any of your comments, feedback, ideas. If you want me to ask certain questions of guests or you have ideas of people that we should be interviewing. That is all goodbye. 